What's going on, everybody? Jared Sandler here with you, getting ready for Just a Sec, episode 43. And this was a fun one for me because it's with a really good friend of mine, someone I grew up with. His name is Ben Jaffe, and it's okay if you haven't heard of him yet, but there's a good chance you'll hear about him or from him in the coming years as he really makes his way up the ladder in the culinary world. The reason I wanted to speak to Ben is because, for one, I think his story is really interesting, but he's that friend who it took him a little bit of time to figure out what it is he wanted to do, or maybe he knew what he wanted to do, but took him some time to pursue it. He's had some challenges along the way, but now he's doing something he loves, and he's doing it at a really high level. And he's doing it in such a way that celebrities want him to do it for them, and that is cook amazing meals. So I wanted to tell Ben's story. I hope you find it enjoyable. It was really fun and special for me to have this conversation with someone I've known for uh, a, a great chunk of my life. And I think that a lot of us are able to relate with a lot of what Ben has to say. Before we get going, just a reminder, would really appreciate if you would share this link with your friends, like the channel, subscribe to the channel, comment, uh, all of that stuff. The, the more eyes and ears on this, the better, and I would really, really appreciate it. But, but without further ado, just a sec, episode 43 with big time rising chef Ben Jaffe. All right, so this is a, a little different for me. I've, I've interviewed friends before, but I don't know that I've, I've interviewed someone I more or less grew up with and, and is a part of my uh, close circle of friends. I'm getting to do that with you today, Ben. Uh, but the first question I ask, even though I, I know some of the answers to this, I guess, I like to ask people about their experience growing up and, and what stood out to them, uh, hobbies, interests, influences, stuff like that. It's open-ended, but when you think back to your experience growing up, uh, what are the things that stand out? Um, Growing up, you know, something that definitely led me towards, I think, my career and something that just sort of kind of helped me find my way. I always just loved, you know, using my hands, whether it's making things or playing sports, things like that. I always loved being active and, you know, being able to create things myself and, you know, whether that was like, you know, in art or photography growing up and in high school or playing sports all through school and even after that. And then, you know, just always trying to, whether I was working in an office after school, still trying to find things outside of that to keep myself busy and active in that sort of manner was something that I think always, it always sort of needed to be a part of my life. And I think that's kind of why eventually took a much more permanent role. Okay. So we always joke that you're really good at the stuff that doesn't matter. Uh, and you know, growing up, that's like Rubik's cube or this video game or that, whatever, uh, puzzles. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. I, I think like now that we're older and I think about it, I guess maybe it didn't matter then, but, but that sort of is a part of who you are is your ability to like the creative side that you talked about or, or the ability to problem solve or, or figure stuff out. I don't, I don't know. Like, have you ever, like we always say it as a joke and, and maybe when we lost to you in something that we thought that, you know, we would say it to like as, as defense for losing, but like, 
you are you have like this ability to be good at the most random things. I, I don't know like if you've ever really given much thought to that, but uh, like what stands out about that to you? Um, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I, I've definitely noticed that a little bit, not to toot my own horn in any way, but I think it's just, uh, I don't know. I've always tried to try new things. And, you know, when I do try something, I, you know, I obviously want to be good at it. And I think I've always sort of pushed myself to get better at these things, regardless of whether or not they play an important role. And I think especially like, you know, leaning towards where I am today in the kitchen, you know, it's like when you come into a kitchen, at least in a, you know, in a hectic restaurant, every day is going to be different. You've got to tackle some new problem each day. You're learning something new each day, whether that's working with your hands or, you know, a new sort of action or motion that you need to be able to execute in the kitchen or whether that's creating a new recipe, things like that. So it's, I think it definitely plays a big role. I don't, don't know exactly how it came to be uh, one of my defining traits, but I'm not mad about it. <laughs> All right. So you graduate from Green Hill, which was where we both went. And then you went to Tulane. Uh, what do you remember about the decision to go there and, 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 and more from the standpoint of like, what were the things you wanted to do uh, after college? Like what, when you were at Tulane, were you thinking, I want to be this or I want to be that? Um, honestly, I was, I mean, finishing school, I was still pretty lost. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I actually spent a few months in Utah working for one of my cousins out there, uh, before I ended up moving to New York city, which even then still had no idea what I wanted to do and was sort of just dabbling around in a few different things. Um, you know, I started out in real estate, which all of my family is involved in and, you know, I was pretty miserable and not enjoying myself. So, you know, I just kind of jumped around trying to find what it was in that, you know, professional career that was really my niche and that I enjoyed. What were, like, do you remember any of the experiences? Obviously you said you didn't like real estate, but that, that you, that were like pivotal or it's like, Hey, like, I need to take a step back and, and I've really got to figure out what it is that I want to do that, that ultimately led you to pursuing a career in, you know, in, in the culinary arts. Well, for starters, I mean, my, like my passion for food definitely came from new Orleans from going to school at Tulane. I, I mean, that's my favorite city in the world without question. And the, the food there, the lifestyle, the, you know, just the atmosphere of that city. There's nothing like it. And the culinary experience there is a big part of their history and their culture. And it's, you know, it definitely, it just grew on me a lot. And I, it was always, food was always something that was important to me, but, you know, I always kind of had it in my mind in the back of my head you know, one day when I'm old and retired and I've got all the time in the world, you know, I'll teach myself how to cook really well. And maybe I'll like, maybe like the restaurant world will be my like second career, like later in life sort of adventure and just always kind of put it off. And then I was up in New York and I was actually working for Yelp. So somewhat food related, but still 
far from what I wanted to be doing at the time. And I ended up uh, actually getting pretty sick. I did not know what was wrong with me for a long time. It ended up being a parasite and I was going to a bunch of different doctors. I was trying all these different diets and you know, I was cooking all the time, but I was also feeling pretty ill most of the time. And while I was doing that, you know, I was still working and it was just between doing something that I wasn't enjoying and the discomfort that I was feeling every day physically, it was, it was getting to a point where it was, you know, I didn't want to get up and do this every day. And, it, you know, at one point a, uh, a flip just sort of switched and I left Yelp and enrolled in culinary school. All right. And oh, go ahead. Made Sorry. That leap. Okay. So I want to get to the, to that decision, but I, I'm glad you brought up the illness. Cause that's something that I wanted to ask you about just not even necessarily from, uh, the standpoint of how it, it helped you uh, go down the path that, you know, where you are now. But when you were going through that, like, I remember I would text you or check in, like, Hey, you know, how you doing? And kind of like you just indicated there, you didn't have an answer right away. Like, you know, a lot of times you go to the doctor, you're not feeling well, and they're able to tell you you've got this and you know, it stinks to hear, but at least there's some peace of mind knowing that they know what the issue is. And now they know what the plan of attack is, but you, you didn't have that with this, like this, there was a lot of unknown. What was that just from like a life standpoint, what was that experience like for you and, and how, uh, how terrifying was it? Or, or were you able to, to kind of block that out? Just, just what was that like? You absolutely cannot block it out. I'll tell you that it's uh it's miserable for, for anybody that's had, you know, going, gone to GI doctors and had, uh, any sort of gastrointestinal issues. They, I'm sure that they are well aware it is very miserable, and if they've spoken with their GI doctors about it, they know that those things are very difficult to diagnose. And, you know, I, for months, I was seeing, I went to see multiple doctors. I was going back home to Dallas between New York and couldn't figure anything out. You know, there were times when I didn't know if maybe there wasn't anything wrong with me, and I was just there was something like wrong with me mentally and it was manifesting itself in some sort of physical way. You know, I was, my, my brain was running, running wild and I, it was not a fun time. You know, I was, couldn't do any of the things I enjoyed doing. Working out was hard going out and I couldn't really, I couldn't drink alcohol. I couldn't eat a lot of the things I enjoyed to eat. You know, I couldn't stay out for very long because I would start to get nauseous and ill. You know, it was a uh, it was a tough time, and I'll tell you, getting getting an answer for that and figuring out what was wrong and getting that treatment was a it was a big change. And I yeah, it was a it was a tough time. All right, so a lot of fun. you mentioned again before we get to culinary school, you mentioned the influence in New Orleans. What was it about the cuisine there? that that really jumped out to you and and are there or was there a restaurant or, or were there restaurants that really you know maybe inspired is too strong of a word but but helped develop that love of, of food that you mentioned in new orleans um you know i i can't necessarily attribute it to one restaurant in particular when we're talking about new orleans food there's 
it's such a wide variety and there's so many options and so many places that I would frequent, but I will say that the, there was actually a professor I had back at Tulane who in the business school, he was one of the deans of the business school as well. And he taught, I actually took two different classes from him, but in one of our freshman classes, I think this was just something he used to do with students to sort of, you know, get them excited about New Orleans and Tulane and just keep them enthusiastic. But he used to actually take us, him, he would either have his TAs drive us or he would drive us. Uh, every Saturday morning, he would take us to brunch to a different, you know, either like well-known or just really good restaurant somewhere around the city to sort of get us like involved in that and let us see that side of the city. And it was uh, obviously not a lot of college professors do that for their students. So it was definitely a very unique experience, but you know, it was uh, being a freshman in a new city um, and getting to, you know, have somebody treat you around to, with all of your friends to all these amazing restaurants all over the city. And you're, you know, meanwhile, you've been spent the last 18 years living in Dallas, which no offense to Dallas, but in terms of cuisine compared to cities like New York or New Orleans or San Francisco, you know, it's not quite there yet. And to just be diving sort of headfirst into something like that, it's pretty eye-opening to see such a vastly different and, you know, very eccentric sort of culture. Do you still keep in touch with that professor? Uh, yes infrequently but we've actually uh we've emailed a few times here and there he checks in he's a great guy professor uh mike Hug. he was the dean of the business school there have you ever like shared with him what that influence that you just shared with me like ha- how he influenced you or is that not something that's ever really come up between you two it has not not since i've started this new career um but it definitely has he uh he helped me out a lot in, uh, in college, actually. I uh, <laughs> was um, pledging a fraternity my second semester uh, freshman year while I was enrolled in one of his classes, and I was doing fine in his class, actually, but there was one of my other classes, uh, business statistics, which I was not doing so well in, and <laughs> without any sort of prompt or me even coming to him, you know, he, he came to me to ask me, you know, and just checked in, you know, what was going on, why I was slipping in that class a little bit. And he actually, uh, you know, he worked with me and I reached out to that professor and, you know, just uh, went to his office hours pretty much uh, every day for the rest of that semester and uh, got my grades back up. And I, uh, you know, I never forgot about him looking out for me like that, helping me out. All right. And then uh, New Orleans, if you, you know, someone's going there, uh, and they want to try great food. It doesn't even need to be like something that you can only get in New Orleans, but nowhere else. But like, what are the spots that they need to go to the, you know, if there's one that stands out or a couple, uh, what are the, you know, what would your, your recommendation be? Well, um, let's see. There's, so the restaurant scene in New Orleans has actually changed somewhat since I have been there. Obviously there are always the, uh, the staples, you know, Antoine's, Commander's Palace, Galatoire's, those are all the very fine dining, you know, 
century-old restaurants that have been there since day one. Um, there is a new restaurant, which one of my favorite chefs, uh, it's not that new. I guess it's about probably four years old or so now, but uh, it's called Saba. Um, it's Elon Shia's restaurant, who he, I'm not sure, I believe it was two years ago, he was named uh, James Beard, the uh, best chef in America. And he previously had a few other restaurants in New Orleans and just left the John Besh restaurant group to open up this place on his own, Saba, as well as he has another place in Denver called Safta, which I have not had the opportunity to check out yet. But I will tell you my experiences at Saba are amazing. All right. So you mentioned going to culinary school and, and figuring out that side of things. Uh, okay. So what, what, what do you remember about that decision? Uh, and what was that experience like going to culinary school? Um, it was a, uh, it was a huge shock. Um, you know, it's definitely very, very different from any sort of, uh, education that I have had up to this point, but I will say it is much more similar to sports, you know, working in a, in a hot kitchen and constantly moving on your feet for 12 hours a day. It's, it's not the it's not the easiest of tasks. You know, you've got to be in somewhat decent shape to do it effectively. And on top of that, chefs, um, I'm sure you're somewhat aware, have a reputation for being pretty aggressive and <laughs> tough on, uh, tough on cooks. And that's, uh, you know, that's twice as bad when you're in culinary school, just cause they want to get you ready for the kitchen. And because it's going to get, uh, you know, it, it varies once you get out of uh, culinary school, what your chefs are going to be like, but it's, it's a grueling experience and it was, uh, it was tough, but it was a lot of fun. You know, I was learning new things every day and it was constantly pushing me and it was things that I enjoyed learning about. So I, I enjoyed it and I have a lot of good friends that came from that experience that are all now working in different restaurants or, food related businesses and that's you know it's only helped me grow that network and reach more into that this community that i'm you know fairly new to compared to most people so what was it like uh you know at, you, you finished culinary school and and just like a lot of careers you got to kind of climb the ranks uh what were those some of those initial experiences like after culinary school and and, and what were maybe some of the challenges you faced um, well, so to start off, I, you know, I knew that, you know, being 27 years old, when you decide to change careers into a career that, you know, a lot of these people started, you know, when they were still in high school and it's a, it's a tough career change to make that late in the game. And you know, you're going to be starting starting from the bottom because nobody in this industry, you can't step into a kitchen and immediately become a chef if you've never, you know, diced an onion before. And so, you know, you've got to put the time in, in this industry. And it was, uh, coming out of culinary school to start off, you know, I wanted to dive sort of head first. So 
I actually took two externships, uh, one with Loring Place, which ended up being the restaurant that I took my first job at out of culinary school, as well as a private chef company called Colonistas in New York, um, working in their test kitchen, uh, helping their chef create new recipes for their chefs. And I was working seven days a week, um, at least about 12 hours a day every day for those eight weeks of my externship period. And, you know, that was so right off the bat, you know, the first two months in the industry and not a single day off was a, it was a bit of a shock. (laughs) Um, but you know, again, it was still early. I was learning something new every day and it was a lot of fun. And, uh, but at the same time you get into the restaurant and as an extern, you know, they know that you're, you're there still learning. So they're, you know, they give you somewhat easier tasks and they're not quite as difficult with you yet. And then externship ends, you get a job offer and everything changes. Um, so I was, I was pretty fortunate You know, I was obviously during my externship, I was doing a lot of prep cook and very like simple tasks. And then right as my externship ended, one of our line cooks on our Garmanger station, which is it's the biggest station in the kitchen, but it's where all of our salads and our small appetizer dishes are prepared. That cook had ended up uh, leaving for another restaurant and I got to jump right up to our line, which is where, you know, everything is plated and prepared for service. And that's, you know, it was a pretty big jump, especially for somebody right out of culinary school to be stepping into a pretty serious uh, restaurant in downtown Manhattan doing around, you know, serving around 300 people every night, you know, full house. And it's very hectic. And it was a, it was a tough, tough time for me. I will tell you that my first, uh, I would say my first six months in that job were pretty rough. You know, you're getting, you're getting screamed at in both ears from two different chefs all day. You know, you're not, you don't have five seconds to take a seat. You've got about five minutes at most to eat your, uh, family meal before dinner service starts. And, even that you're probably standing up doing that while you're prepping or setting something else up at the same time. And, you know, it's a, it was a, uh, it was a tough start getting sort of getting the hang of how everything works in the kitchen and how to operate efficiently. And, you know, it's like little things that you pick up over time that make you faster and faster. And it took me, I would say a good six months to get comfortable and, when you're not at that point yet, the kitchen is not a very fun place to be. <laughs> I I remember, uh, you know, talking to you about, you know, just, I don't know, typical questions, you know, you're catching up with someone in your mid twenties, are you dating someone, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, you know, I, you kind of shared, well, it's tough cause I, I work nights and I definitely work weekends and, and I know what that's like just in sports, you know, they're when everyone's out hanging out, that's when sports happens because that's when people are able to attend the events and everything. And I know that was a challenge for me at one point because I wanted to meet people, but I never really had the chance to do that. And I know in New York you had friends and and you, it wasn't like you were there alone, but 
just from the social side of it, what was that like and, and how did you deal with having a lot of your social opportunities taken away from you just because that, that was the nature of the career you were pursuing? Um, yeah, you know, it's tough and it's something that you give, I think a little bit of thought to beforehand because, you know, everyone talks about it and it's just, it's a, it's part of the situation, but then you don't really realize it fully until you're actually there and, you know, you're getting ready for your, you know, your eighth Saturday night shift in a row. Meanwhile, all your friends are, uh, out doing something or maybe one of your friends has an engagement party, you know, something important, but you know, this is, this is your every day. So you can't, you can't miss, you can't miss, you know, your primetime work hours to go enjoy yourself with your friends. And that's, that's part of the job. And it was, uh, it was, I think it was tough at first, but you know, after a while you just kind of get, accustomed to it and I think I sort of was telling myself you know this is like this is like my boot camp and you know I I'm not getting any time off right now this is where I need to learn and this is where I need to be and you know I just you just kind of have to deal with it it's the reality of the situation and you know at the same time restaurant is uh it's not the worst place to be uh you know when all your friends are out having fun. You know, I had great relationships with all of my coworkers, my chefs. I had a lot of fun working there and, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, some of my friends would come into the restaurant all the time Saturday night and they're coming in for dinner. So I get to pop out for a few minutes and, you know, chat with them and then I'm back to work and they're going out for drinks afterwards or, you know, whatever it may be. And it's, uh, it's tough, but, you know, I figured my way around it. You know, we would, for the most part, pretty much everyone in the restaurant usually goes out for a drink or two after work at the end of the night, which is usually around one or 2 AM. <laughs> um, but we, you know, we had our ways of, uh, maintaining our sanity. <laughs> All right. So I want to, I guess, fast forward to this past fall or, or whenever the, the plans were put in place, but uh, you had plans to go to Utah for the winter uh, and start a food truck uh, and, and use that as a, you know, an experience and, and, you know, an, another step, the next step. Uh, so first of all, let's start with just the origination of that idea. Where did that idea come from and what are the things you've got to do uh, to prepare for uh, opening up a food truck, uh, you know, I don't know if there's anything unique about Utah that that you know that that's worth sharing, but just in general, what are the things that that you had to do to to get ready for that plan? Um, well, there are about a million different things that you've got to do to get ready for that. It is a much more complicated process than I had imagined upon originating that idea, but. To, so to start off, my one of my friends from culinary school, she ended up finding this old vintage truck while she was in Portland uh, one time and had it shipped back to New York where she had it like renovated into this amazing vintage food truck. And at the time, she had an idea of turning it into an ice cream 
truck and, you know, going that route, but she was busy with her, you know, her main business at the time and wasn't really doing anything with it. So I had reached out to her, you know, and asked about potentially leasing it from her and shipping it to Utah for the winter to set up a food truck on the mountain there. And everything was pretty much underway. You know, I was working uh, with the mountain. I was working with people locally in Utah in terms of getting set up with the health department there, getting a commissary space to do all, all of my prep and store my food. And, you know, everything was underway. And then it was just, uh, it was sort of getting into ski season time and things were getting delayed and new speed bumps were hitting and, you know, opening, opening a food truck, opening a restaurant, opening a business of any kind, there's always going to be speed bumps. And I think in this sort of situation, when you're working with a limited season, it's just, uh, it's not the kind of time crunch you want to be dealing with. And it got to a point where, you know, I was cutting into the season already and the cost of just leasing this truck as well as a lot of the obstacles I'd have to deal with of having a food truck on a ski mountain in the middle of winter was just becoming a little bit too much to make it a, you know, a profitable venture. And, uh, at the time I was already in Utah getting, you know, trying to get everything else set up while I was waiting on shipping the truck before we decided to pull the plug on that. And I, while I was getting set up, you know, I didn't have as much to do because the truck wasn't there yet. So one of my friends who I had met there, um, she reached out to me saying that her friend who actually happened to be in charge of the development, the real estate development for the mountain, uh, needed a private chef for his girlfriend's birthday. And so I got in touch with him and ended up, uh, preparing a uh, dinner for him and his girlfriend, just a small private little dinner. And then meanwhile, everything with the truck is, you know, getting pushed back. And at that point I sort of just decided to pull the plug for certain on setting it up for this past season, which ended up being a blessing since it was a half season anyways, ending with a, all of the mountains, you know, across the country shutting down with the pandemic. And I decided to just, you know, I was already up there for the winter. I had a pretty good time with this one private chef experience, uh, cooking for this man and his girlfriend. And it's, you know, it's a lot less overhead and a lot more money than, any other route at that time. So I decided to give that a whirl and the, uh, the community on this ski mountain is actually pretty small. So they have a, they have, you know, an, a email chain and like text message threads and all of that to stay in touch and let people know what's going on around the mountain. And so my friend who had introduced me, uh, to my first client out there sent out a message to, all of the neighbors on the mountain, everyone that lived there and let them know, Hey, this private chef is uh, out here from New York and he is available. If anybody needs somebody to come cook for parties, events, dinners, whatever it may be. 
And immediately, within five minutes, uh, the man who I had cooked for his girlfriend's birthday responds, you know, hey, Ben's a great chef, cooked one of the best halibut I've ever had, definitely give him a call. And I think within the next hour, I probably had about 20 or so new clients that had reached out to book me for dinners throughout the winter. And it just sort of uh, snowballed from there. Okay, so one of the things as friends you you shared with us that was pretty cool, you got to cook for some some celebrities. And I know one of those celebrities was Rihanna, who, you know, that's not just like some D-list celebrity. That's a, that's a big deal. So how how did that all happen, and what was that experience like cooking for someone like her? Um, well, to backtrack to how it actually unfolded. Um, so I wasn't actually told that (laughs) Rihanna would be attending at the time. Um, the way it had initiated was, uh, so there's, to give you a little preface on the mountain, it's owned by a company called summit, uh, which produces sort of like networking events for, you know, young entrepreneurs, artists, philanthropists, and, you know, really just to sort of like leaders in their field, whatever that field may be, it's similar sort of to like TED conferences. And they, so they own this mountain and they're sort of the ones developing it and trying to build this community out here. And at one of their past events out in LA, uh, ASAP Rocky, the rapper was one of their keynote speakers. And so he had decided to come out to Utah to their mountain with Tyler, the creator to work on recording uh, some music together for the winter. And their agent had, uh, their agent had reached out. And one of the people who I had cooked with before that worked with summit recommended me. So I, you know, I got in touch with their agent and then, they put me in touch with both Rocky and Tyler's assistants who I had been told they were going to be the only ones there originally, uh, as well as, you know, their security detail and a few other people that they were with. So it was going to be 10 people. And then this was going to be a one week period where they were staying out here. And then the second day, uh, I, somebody comes in in the morning and they're like, uh, we've got a new guest arriving tonight so make sure everything is on point and you know they're being like a little secretive about it and then uh i find out a little bit later that that's rihanna who is now joining with her team as well and how did you find out did they did someone finally tell you or did you just like see her walk in oh uh no somebody finally told me okay um yeah it wasn't like a you know it wasn't like a state secret but uh they were just sort of not trying to make a big deal out of it. And and in addition to that, you know, they kind of wanted to keep a low profile out on the mountain and not have uh, not have a crowd out there and have people pestering them and all that. So they were just kind of trying to relax out there and record. So I think that was part of the reason. So is there more pressure? I mean, I know a customer is a customer, but like, was there more pressure cooking for her? Uh, for these, you know, well-known musical artists and, and, and what was that experience? Did you get to interact with them? Like, what was that experience like? 
Oh yeah, I mean it's uh it was very cool. I I mean it was a lot of fun. I got to got to hang out with uh, all three of them, Tyler, Rocky, and Rihanna, uh, for a lot of the time during that week. You know, there's only two main main rooms that they were using in the in the house that they were recording in and one was this giant living room where they had set up their recording studio and the only other room really with any sort of seating was the kitchen so when they weren't recording they were usually hanging out in the kitchen with me uh where where you know i was spending 18 hours a day prepping three meals for them so um it was a it was a pretty cool experience uh and yeah um it was definitely intimidating at first you know i mean asap rock and tyler the creator i'm definitely big fans of each of their music uh, but i will say this when rihanna first walked into the house i you know my <laughs> jaw sort of dropped and you know didn't really know what to do <laughs> um and you know she just sort of had this as I'm sure you can imagine, she just sort of has this aura around her and, you know, but then she came in, she came over, introduced herself to me. You know, we chatted a little bit. She's very down to earth, very cool, very sweet. Um, you know, as with, uh, both Tyler and Rocky as well, they were both very much more down to earth than I, you know, would have imagined. And, you know, Tyler was definitely probably hung out in the kitchen with me the most which was surprising because uh his uh his diet is not the uh not the most sophisticated he's <laughs> simple foods and you know he he's a pretty healthy guy aside from his diet so he doesn't really uh he doesn't drink um but he would when you know when everyone else is it, you know when they're done recording for the night and they start uh hanging out and relaxing a little bit he'll come into the kitchen and make himself a uh a hot chocolate <laughs> <laughs> and that's like that's his treat for the night <laughs> that's awesome i so in a restaurant i don't you know depending on the restaurant size you got you know a, a few hundred uh customers per night and chances are one of them is gonna maybe not enjoy their meal uh, and I don't know, you know, depending on the person, maybe they just decide, well, I, I ordered the wrong thing or, uh, some of them maybe are like, I'm never coming back here again, you know, whatever it might be. But for a lot of these restaurants, like I imagine with Loring place, like, you know, you're as much as you have the, the, the cliche of like every customer matters. If someone, you know, is unhappy one night, like you're going to survive. That's fine. When you're cooking for an individual uh, you know, in a private setting or like a small group, is there more pressure because now if one person doesn't like the meal that, that is more significant when it's one out of, let's say five versus one out of 500. I don't know if that makes sense what I'm asking, oh, but no, absolutely. And that absolutely makes sense because it's a hundred percent true. Um, in that regard, yes, the, your execution is, significantly more important in the private chef world than it is in the restaurant world. Not to say that it isn't important in the restaurant world, but like you said it, you know, you serve 300 guests in a night and one guest's dish is, you know, slightly overcooked or had a little too much salt, whatever it may be. And 
you know, that's not the end of the world. You know, we'll, we'll maybe send out an extra dish or send, you know, some drinks to their table for, as compliments to, you know, help make amends and, you know, give them a slightly better experience. You know, that was something that I learned very well at Loring Place. The hospitality there is top notch. Uh, my former chef, Dan Kluger, who's the executive chef of Loring Place, you know, he, his first restaurant was, uh, at Union Square Cafe, which is one of Danny Meyer's restaurants under Union Square Hospitality Group. He's, you know, he's actually wrote the book on hospitality. Um, and so getting to learn in that setting and, you know, we have an open kitchen, so we interact with the diners a lot. We get to see how our management and played a role in the private chefing as well. Um, but yes, back to your question, when, when you're in the private chef world, you know, some of these nights, you know, I'm cooking for four guests. If, if one of their, if one of my dishes isn't uh, up to standards, you know, then that's, it's a pretty, pretty big uh, ding on my record there. And, you know, a lot of these people, it, yes, in a mountain setting where it's a ski town and there aren't too many other food options, I might not be in too much trouble, but in any regard, you know, you always want to leave a good impression and you want them to, A, spread the word for you and also want you to come back. And, you know, especially in a small mountain town like that, you know, a lot of my business was repeat business. I had, you know, one of my clients booked me for two weeks straight to cook for two families and you know it started out as one week and he added on another week after the fact after he had already you know seen what i could do and i'm sure you know if some of my nights weren't up to his standards and i didn't execute my dinners as well then i probably wouldn't have gotten that second week so i would definitely say that that's important i guess it's unrealistic to expect that everyone is going to love every single meal. Uh, you know, you're naturally going to have some you like more than others, but have you had that experience where someone, you know, whether it's, it's just a subjective opinion or like maybe you did something in the process that uh, you would have changed or like it, they didn't have that experience in, in the private setting that you've had to deal with, or has that not really been an issue you've had to experience just yet? Um, so there were not too many uh, issues like that. Now, firstly, I will say this. Uh, I do believe that in the private setting, as opposed to dining in a restaurant, that people are maybe a little bit more forgiving. I don't know if maybe I'm just a little harder on myself, but it feels like, you know, because you're working in their kitchen, setting everything up for them, you know, you're chatting with these people a lot more it's probably a little bit more difficult, I would imagine, in that sort of setting to, you know, get upset with your server or your chef <laughs> um, if something isn't quite up to your standards. But with that said, I will say this. I, I knew exactly what I did wrong when I messed anything up with any of those dinners. And I was probably, before I even served it or if I had already put it down, I was, you know, I was beating myself up probably more than they were thinking 
there was anything wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I just, you know, I know there's like sometimes with, with cooking, like one small move, what I've learned and, and I've talked to you about this cause you know, from just like a hobby standpoint, it's something I've really taken up. Like I've learned like one wrong move, like one small miss, like could totally impact things. And, you know, I imagine oh, absolutely. that. Yeah. Um, all right. So a few, uh, a few quick hitters here. Uh, we'll wrap this up. Uh, well, first of all, actually, before I get to that, what what's next? Like you're, you're here as we speak, you're in DFW, you know, when people listen to this, I don't know, you know, where you might be, but like, have you, Given thought to, to what's next, do you want to go back to New York, back to Utah? Like, what are, what what's uh, what are the plans? Um, so you know, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so everything is uh, definitely still up in the air a little bit. But I will say this: I I know that I still have a lot more to learn in the kitchen, and I know that I do want to be back in a you know professional kitchen setting. So as of right now, I would say New York getting back into a kitchen is going to be my next move. But at the same time, you know, I had a, a great time in Utah. I made a lot of great connections and I have a pretty wide network of clients already set up there. So that is always definitely going to be in the cards for me to go back there this winter. All right. How do you find creativity in food? You know, that is uh, that's a tough one. You know, it's, it is, it's hard, especially because, you know, there so many things have already been done. So it's kind of hard, especially, you know, as a young chef that's much newer to this industry to, to want to, you know, sort of have your own style and your own flavor and be able to create these new combinations that nobody's ever thought of. It's, you know, it's a daunting task when in this, you know, in this industry that's been around since civilization has, in a sense, you know, people have been cooking since they made fire and to try to innovate off of something that's been around for that long is, uh, pretty tough. But I, you know, I just try to, you just kind of have to be very mindful whenever you're around food, whenever you're eating, whenever you're in a restaurant, taking a look at what they're, what other restaurants are doing on their menu. And it's just, you know, it's just a lot of randomness, to be honest. You're just constantly thinking about it. And when you have the opportunity, you try something new. And, you know, it's a lot of trial and error. You try it and it tastes great, then awesome. You're going to keep working at it and refining it. If it doesn't, then you move on to the next idea. That's sort of just how the process goes. All right, so quick hitters here. If if these are one word answers, that's fine. Uh, favorite cooking tool? Chef's knife. Favorite ingredient to cook with? Hmm. Favorite ingredient to cook with? Or like, if you're creating a recipe, like what's yeah, like your your go to ingredient? Um. That is tough. My go-to ingredient. I mean, I love cooking squash. I'll go with that. Okay. All the different ways. It's yeah, very uh, versatile vegetable. Okay. The the tool. So we we said your favorite tool. The tool that's like the biggest pain in the ass to have to use. Um. 
tool that is the biggest pain in the ass to have to use. That's a tough one, actually. I will tell you this. Uh, my a tool that was very that was very difficult to master at the beginning, but is fun now. That my culinary school chef would hate me answering this is uh, <laughs> our kitchen tweezers. You know, pasta tweezers. Got it. Okay. Um, which you use either twirling pasta for you know fine dining plating or for you know picking up individual pieces of whatever uh, you know food or whatever it may be for you know very uh, precise plating, which you know our culinary school chef was uh, <laughs> quite a hater on. Okay, what's the ingredient that's just like it's tough to work with because it's tough to to get it right or I don't I don't know, just like an ingredient that's maybe more of a challenge than others. Um I mean does baking all of it. <laughs> Anything in that pastry world, I am yeah, I am very far behind on. You know, it's the pastry side of the business is it's a whole nother ball game and uh you know it's much different it's very precise uh both in measurements and cooking and it's you know it, everything moves a lot slower and it's just a very different world and i am not very well versed at all <laughs> all right celebrity or, or a person you would most like to cook for at some point uh barack obama Okay, so you you're cooking for Barack Obama. He says to you, Ben, I want your, you know, your go-to meal, whatever whatever you do best. What is that? Um what I do best, I would say my best dishes are usually pasta related, but I would probably want to keep it uh a little more uh, Texan and do a do probably like a marinated hanger steak. And then, you know, my cooking style is very similar to Loring Place. Uh, it's, you know, very vegetable forward, uh, local fresh ingredients. So, you know, wherever I may be cooking for him, whatever I'd be making, it'd be centered around that sort of theme, which is usually my style. Okay, we talked about this uh, the other day, but as a chef, you, you, I guess you don't have to like all the foods, but you've got to be able, like, you, you can't, like, have a food that you don't like and thus not know what it tastes like and what it's supposed to taste like. It's important to, to have a, an open-minded palate, I guess. What, what's the food that, like, you, you used to not like that you've sort of had to force yourself to not necessarily like it, but taste it and, and understand it? Cilantro. Without a doubt. And I'm sure, I mean, it's, you know, it's commonly known that a lot of people just naturally do not like cilantro. I am one of those people. <laughs> but uh, one thing that uh, has, that's very big in all of my cooking is use of herbs. You know, it brings a lot of flavor into any dish. Um, cilantro is a very popular herb. And, it, you know, it actually, I would, before I had ever gotten into a kitchen and started cooking, I would not put that on a single thing, but after, you know, having to taste it in different recipes, different sauces with different dishes, 
It actually, I do find it goes well with a lot of different things now. And, you know, I've actually sort of grown accustomed to the taste. All right. What's the the most common mistake that like an amateur might make in the kitchen that, you know, you, you love to be able to say like, Hey, don't do this. Like, you know, what, for whatever reason, a lot of people make this mistake. Is there one that jumps out? Um, you know, I'll tell you this, a lot of people, no matter what it is that I'm cooking when it vegetable wise, for the most part, uh, they ask how you did this or, you know, what did you cook this with? And in most cases, it's almost always salt and olive oil and that's it. But the reason that it probably, uh, you know, tastes good or has that right texture is because it is blanched before it is seared in a pan. So that means cooked in boiling water until tender and then in a very hot saute pan with a little bit of olive oil to where it just reaches that smoking point. Then the veggies go in, get a little color on them, uh, you know, whatever it may be, depending on the vegetable. But blanching and then searing is always move. Well, how about that advice? And I'll tell you from experience after chatting with Ben, I blanched and it works and it tastes great. So some free advice from a rising chef in the culinary world. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Jaffe and how cool Uh, you go to Utah, a plan that goes awry and you end up cooking for Rihanna. I'd say that's uh, that's pretty badass if you ask me. Uh, All right, so just a sec, episode 43. Again, if you're tuning in, really appreciate it. If this is your first time, if you're back for more, thanks so much for being a loyal listener. Would really appreciate if you would share the link, subscribe to the channel, like the the interview, comment, whatever it is that uh, strikes your fancy. Would really appreciate your support if uh, you feel so inclined. All right, we got episode 44 coming up later this week with... The voice of the Los Angeles Angels on the TV side and the first ever voice of MLB Network, former Texas Rangers broadcaster, former minor league baseball player, Victor Rojas. So tune in later for that. But until then, stay safe, be healthy. I'll talk to you soon.